Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. I'll be reading from Luke 22, uh, verses 24 through 30. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is greater one who reclines at table or one who serves is it not the one who reclines at table but I am among you as the one who serves you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Thanks, Brian. Good morning. All right, well, uh, if you guys have been with us for any length of time, you know that we have been studying the book of Luke. Uh, And we have been studying the book of Luke for a really long time. It's been like a a year and a half, I think, at least. And so uh, you've probably noticed that there's this theme that keeps coming up in the book of Luke. And, And Brad mentioned it in his call to worship. And that is the theme of the kingdom. And uh, as these next few weeks, as we look at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, what we're going to do is really focus in on what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his kingdom, the kingdom. And the way I'll refer to it most of the time today is the true kingdom. And so today, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to describe this true kingdom by painting a picture of the true king. And then again, over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus actually live out that picture of the true king and actually show us what a true king looks like. So again, for today, what what Brian just read, the context for today is Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. And so before we get into this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, I think it's helpful to go all the way back to the beginning when Jesus first called the disciples. And so that was way back in Luke 5. So many of you may not have been here with us then. And if you were here, you may not remember it. So I'm going to quickly recap it for us so we can remember when Jesus first called the disciples. So um, there's this region called Galilee. And uh, there are a few cities up in Galilee. One of them is Nazareth. You may have heard of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus actually grew up in Nazareth. And there was this saying that went around, you know, that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And that's basically what could be said for this whole region of Galilee, uh, which is right around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, you know, he's going to call some disciples, people that are going to follow him. And so where is he going to go? He goes to this region where nothing good is expected. He goes to Galilee. And in Luke chapter 5, it talks about how he goes to this city called uh, Gennesaret. And Gennesaret is on kind of the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes there and he's going to call his disciples. And so um, in the account in in Luke 5, he kind of explains how that happens. Luke, Luke explains it. And so the way it happened is this. So there's some fishermen fishing on the shore. And they stay up all night fishing, 
and they don't catch anything. Their nets are empty. And then Jesus shows up, and he's got this big crowd of people following him, and there's such a big crowd that he actually has to step in one of their boats in order to teach the people. So he, he climbs in, he gets in one of their boats, and he teaches the people. And after he's done teaching the people, he actually asks these fishermen to do something for him. He says, you know what? You know what you ought to do is throw your nets back in. Throw your nets on the other side and just kind of see what happens. And so these fishermen, they listen to Jesus. They throw their nets back in the water, and something amazing happens. Not only are there nets full of fish, but actually two boats get filled with fish to the point that these boats are sinking. And so this is something these fishermen have never seen before, you know, and they'll probably never see again. Two boats full of fish. And they're amazed, they're astonished, and there's really only one reaction that makes sense when there's two boats full of fish. They fall down on their knees and they worship Jesus because they know there's no other way this could have happened. And so Jesus looks at them and, and he pulls them up, pulls them to their feet. Uh, he says, don't be afraid. And he invites them to come and follow him. He says, come, follow me. And what these fishermen do is they leave everything and they follow Jesus. And I don't think these fishermen or these people, that, these men that would become disciples, I don't think they maybe thought of it like this at the time, but as they followed Jesus, they were actually stepping into a different kingdom. This was kind of their first step into the true kingdom, leaving everything behind, leaving an old kingdom behind, and stepping into a true kingdom. Because what Jesus had basically done is, is he kind of laid two kingdoms before these fishermen. There's this, this kingdom of this world over here, you know, where the fishermen, they stay up all night trying to fish. And, and in this kingdom, there's no Jesus and there's no fish. Their nets are empty. And then Jesus comes along and there's this second kingdom, this true kingdom with Jesus. And not only are the nets full, but there's two boats full of fish. So the disciples, this is their first glimpse of Jesus, They're the first glimpse of the true king, and they say, I want that. I am going to follow him. I'm going to leave everything behind, and I am going to follow him. And so today, we pick it up three years later. So we fast forward three years. The disciples have been with Jesus for three years. And, I mean, how amazing would that be? You know, every day they're with Jesus. And so they get to witness miracle after miracle. Jesus feeds thousands of people. The disciples get to see it. Jesus heals all sorts of diseases. The disciples get to see it. Jesus raises people from the dead. The disciples have a front row seat for everything that Jesus does. And yet here we are three years later, and we see that that old kingdom, this kingdom over here, is constantly tugging at these disciples to, and trying to pull them away from this true kingdom and this true king. And that's what we see today in this conversation. And, and so we'll pick it up in verse 24. It says, uh, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here are the disciples. And again, they're getting tugged into this other kingdom over here, and they're arguing. They're, they're having this dispute over which one is the greatest. And so Jesus overhears this argument, and he comes and he addresses it uh, in his 
Jesus kind of way. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't belittle them, you know, what's your problem? Why are you arguing? And he doesn't offer advice to them. What Jesus does is what Jesus always does. Jesus goes after their heart. Because Jesus realizes, like with most things, the argument is actually not the problem. The issue is not the issue. This argument actually points to a deeper problem, this heart problem. And that problem is that they have a divided heart. There's this part of them that really wants to be over here in the true kingdom, but there's still this part of them that's getting tugged and pulled away to this other kingdom. And Jesus recognizes that, and he's going to address it. And again, he's going to address it in his Jesus way, and what he's going to do is paint a picture. He's going to lay out two kingdoms again, just like he did when he first called them. He's going to do it again. He's going to lay out these two kingdoms. And the way he's going to do it is he's actually going to paint a picture of two types of kings. He's going to first say, you know, here's what the kings of the world look like. And then he's going to say, here's what your true king looks like. And so we'll pick it up. We'll keep moving. And in verse 25, he describes the kings of the world. It says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he kind of gives two descriptions, and we'll, we'll take them one at a time. He says, first, you know, these kings exercise lordship. So what does that mean, to exercise lordship? Basically, it means they, they act like a king. They're in charge, and so they act like it. They tell their people what to do. And then there's this second part. It says, those in authority are called benefactors. So that's not a word I hear every day, so I had to look that up. What's a benefactor? So a benefactor is basically someone who helps people, okay? So today we might think of it as like a philanthropist or a, a, a donor, someone that gives money or supports an organization or people. So just to sum it up, the kings of this world, they are in charge and they act like it. They exercise lordship and they are called benefactors. They do good things for people. So I hear that and I'm like, that's great. Like, What's the problem with being in charge and acting like it? That seems like what you should do. And what's wrong with being a benefactor, like doing good for people? Like this sounds like a pretty good system. But if we read on in verse 26, Jesus says, but not so with you. But not so with you. And, and I hear that and I'm like, why not? Again, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with being in charge and what's wrong with doing good things? So to help us think that through, um, I don't know if you guys heard about this. There was this little movie that came out a couple weeks ago. It's called Toy Story 4. Anyone heard of that? Um, so yeah, just, just a little movie. I got to go see it with my kids, uh, probably more for me than for my kids because I love the Toy Story movies. Um, and it kind of brought up this debate, like which Toy Story movie is the best? And so clearly it's Toy Story 3, right? I think we can all agree, yeah? So Toy Story 3 is the best, but some people think differently, um, and they'd be wrong. Um, and so anyway, so as, uh, as we saw that movie, it reminded me of kind of all the Toy Story movies. And there's actually this little-known Toy Story movie. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's like the Christmas Toy Story movie. It's called Toy Story That Time Forgot. Anyone? Nobody. All right. Well, you're going to hear about it today, and then you're going to want to go rent it 
but I've got it. So anyway, so Toy Story that time forgot. It's back here. You can kind of see the poster on this screen. Um, an excellent movie. Uh, and so since nobody's familiar, I'll kind of catch you up. Uh, so what Toy Story That Time Forgot is about is it really centers around this group of toys called Battlesaurs, okay, which should really be an actual toy because they're awesome. So a, a Battlesaur is a dinosaur that is, is a, a warrior, a warrior dinosaur. So in this story, the problem with the Battlesaurs is they don't realize that they're actually toys. Uh, it's a lot like Buzz in the first Toy Story movie where Woody's like, you are a toy. Uh, that's, the, that's the battle stores. They think they're actually just warrior dinosaurs. They live in this city called Battleopolis. They have a king, and they do battle. That is their every day. They just go out, and they do battle, and they think that that's life. That's all there is to life. And so the story really centers around these two main uh, characters, these two main dinosaurs, uh, and their names are Reptilus and Trixie. And so uh, Trixie is a toy, and she completely knows that she's a toy, and she loves being a toy. And so she meets Reptilus, and Reptilus is a battlesaur. And Reptilus has no idea that he's actually a toy. And there's this really great scene, and you'll just have to go with me here, where Trixie tries to explain to Reptilus that there's a whole lot more to life than being a battle sore. She's, she tries to explain to him that like being a toy is actually living for a kid. And when you live for a kid, it's like this whole life that you never even knew is there. And it's amazing and it's wonderful. And so there's this conversation. And I was going to play a clip, but it didn't work. So you're just going to have to bear with me. I'm just going to uh, read this dialogue for you. So, so here's the dialogue. <laughs> I practiced this with my daughter last night. She said, I do a good reptilist, but not a good Trixie. So anyway, you'll have to bear with me. So here's what, um, here's the dialogue. Trixie says, <clears throat> Reptilus, your world is bigger than you know. Let me show you what you are. And Reptilus says, but I'm a battlesaur. <laughs> and um, Trixie replies, but you can be so much more. And it's really this, this amazing scene, and I think it kind of points to what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples in this moment. He sees that they're drifting back into this old kingdom mindset. He, it's like they're arguing over who's the best battle sore. And then Jesus is over here, and he's like, guys, you can be so much more. There's this other life waiting for you, and it's so much more. So going back to the question earlier, what's wrong with this kingdom? What's wrong with the way of the world? Well, it's really pretty simple. When we live in this kingdom of this world, this way of the world, we forget that we are meant for so much more. We were created to be with our creator to live with our creator. And when we forget that, we're living over here. And over here, there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's like we're, we're trying really hard and we're left with empty nets. But over here, there's Jesus. And with Jesus, there's everything else. 
We don't have emptiness, emptiness anymore, empty nets. We have fullness. We have these full boats. And so um, Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, there's kind of a, a summary of these two kingdoms for us. Isaiah 40 in verse 17, it says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted as less than nothing and emptiness. And then in verses 22 and 23, it says, It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then finally in verse 28, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So what it's saying is, yeah, I mean, yes, there's a kingdom over here, but it's really nothing. And the rulers are empty. But over here, there's a true kingdom and a true king who lives forever. And not only does he live forever, but he never gets tired, and he's always good. And so Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to live in the true kingdom, in this kingdom over here. And that's what he gets at in verse 26. It says, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. So when I first read this, when I was first studying this, I wanted to read that as advice. You know, you want to be the greatest? Then you need to become as the youngest. You want to be a leader? Then you need to serve. But I think Jesus, whenever he speaks, it's a little bit deeper than that. Again, it's not just advice. He's not saying, be the youngest. Come on, serve. Do better. Try harder. Again, I think he's painting a picture. He's saying, you want to know what it looks like to live in this kingdom, in the true kingdom? then you need to look at me, your true king. And he makes that clear as we read on. It says, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. So again, back at verse 26, it says, let the greatest among you. And then it ends by saying, be the one who serves. And then Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. I'm painting you a picture of your king, and I am that king. So let's look at this a little bit closer as Jesus describes this true king. Again, in verse 26, it says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. So there's basically two descriptions there, and we'll kind of take those one at a time. So the first one says, the greatest among you become as the youngest. So I think we have to ask, you know, how has Jesus become as the youngest? And I think before we even ask that, we have to ask, you know, is Jesus really the youngest? Is, is Jesus the youngest? Um, and I think if we look into the word, we'll see that, no, he's, he's really not the youngest. And so we'll see that in Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verse 15, talking about Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then in John, again describing Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I think this makes it clear that, no, Jesus is not the youngest. Actually, he's the oldest. He's, he's the firstborn. 
He's the only one with actually a claim to the kingdom. He's the true king. And yet this true king kind of lays down his oldestness and takes on being the youngest. And we see that in Philippians. Uh, it, it tells it really well in Philippians. It says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God. In the NIV it says, being in very nature God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So Jesus, he is the oldest, but he empties himself of that to become as the youngest, to become like us. So what does it mean to be the youngest? I think to become the youngest means to be helpless, to know that you can do nothing on your own. And so Brad helped us with this a few weeks ago, if you remember, uh, he brought a baby up on the stage to make this point. And so since he did that, you know, I, I won't do it again. But, um, but yeah, so he makes this point that we are helpless. And we are as helpless as a baby. You know, a, a baby cannot do anything on their own. And so whenever they need something, they cry out for help because they know they can't do anything on their own. And I think we can kind of come to terms with that for ourselves, like, okay, maybe I'm helpless. But what Jesus is saying is, is, yeah, that's you, that's true, but that's also me. I became helpless for you. And so if you're, anything, if you're like me, you might think, eh, I don't know that he became helpless. I mean, earlier you talked about those miracles and feeding people and healing people and bringing people from the dead. Uh, it doesn't really seem like Jesus was helpless but the words of Jesus would actually say otherwise. Uh, in John 5, 19, Jesus says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord. And later, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. And again, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And then finally, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself given me what to say and what to speak. So Jesus becomes the youngest. He becomes helpless, and he completely relies on his Father. And why does he do that? To show us who are really the youngest, who are really helpless, what it looks like to live in this kingdom over here. And so Jesus, as our helpless king, Everything Jesus did, the Father did for him, or the Father did through him. And so, so that's the first part. You know, Jesus becomes as the youngest, and then there's the second part where it says the leader as the one who serves. So we'll kind of approach this the same way. You know, is Jesus really a servant? How does Jesus serve? Is that, is that his true identity as a servant? And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So just like Jesus is not really the youngest, but became the youngest for us, Jesus is not really a servant. He is a son who became a servant for us. 
He is the son, as it says here, the appointed heir, the true king. And I think it's really cool, you know, if you guys were here last week, it was just this awesome picture as Daniel brought the kids up here and went through the the Passover. Uh, He talked about who is able to recline at table. And he said, really, the only people who could recline at table were people who were free. Servants or slaves could not recline at table. They would have to sit at table or they would be serving. But people who are free can recline at table. And so Jesus here, you know, he says, who, who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And so who is the only one who is truly free? Well, that's Jesus, the son, the true king, the true son. He is the only one who is truly free and can rightfully recline at table. But what does he do? He doesn't recline at table. He comes and he serves. And again, I I think Paul, writing in Philippians, paints this picture so well. Um, He says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, though he is a son, the one and only son, lived his whole life as a servant in submission to his father, a servant of his father. So just as Jesus shows us, just as Jesus is the helpless king, Jesus is also the submissive king. And as the submissive king, everything Jesus did, he did for the Father. And so as I hear this, it's like, man, how how could he do it? How could he do that? I mean, this is Jesus. He's the oldest. He's the son. He's the king. How could he lay all that down and become as the youngest? How could he become helpless? How could he serve? And and as I've thought about this, I think the main reason, the way he could do that is this relationship with the Father. Jesus' relationship with the Father, I think, is something that we can really never fully understand. Because the Father and Son, they have been together since the beginning of time. So Jesus knows the Father, the Father knows Jesus, and it's this closeness, it's this tightness that, again, is beyond anything we can comprehend. Jesus knows the Father, he knows the Father loves him, he trusts the Father, and he knows the Father knows what's best for him. So if the Father says, you know, this is the plan, you're going to go be helpless and you're going to serve, Jesus says, yep, sign me up, I'm in, let's do this. So he's going to lay down his rights He will become helpless. He will serve because he knows it's the best thing he can do because he knows his father and he trusts his father. And he's living over here in that true kingdom. And he knows, man, if you say so, I know that's the full life. That's the life I want. And again, it's it's a little bit silly, but it's kind of like Trixie, okay? Uh, Trixie knows what it's like to give up her life and be, be, give up her life for a kid. Trixie knows what it's like to like experience 
playtime. So after she's done that, she's like, why would I live in this weird world over here, this Battleopolis world? And so, so anyway, that's Jesus. Jesus knows the fullness of life, living for his Father, living with his Father. So he sees his disciples, and they're arguing over who's the greatest, and he's like, why, why, why would you want to do that? That's such a waste. There's, it's so much better over here. It also, it, uh, it reminds me of a song we sing a lot uh, here at Hill City. We didn't sing it today, um, but, it, but it's called uh, I Shall Not Want. Um, and this song, uh, it confronts kind of a lot of the tugging and the pull. It confronts a lot of the, this kingdom of this world mentality. In the verses, it, it talks about um, the love of my own comfort the need to be understood, the fear of being lonely, all these things that try to kind of pull us away. And then it says, you know, I shall not want, I shall not want those things. And then in singing that song, it's like, how? How do I not want those things? That's so hard. And then we get to the chorus, and the chorus says, when I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And I and I think there's nobody, no one has tasted the goodness of the Father like the Son. He has tasted and seen, he has tasted that goodness, and he says, man, I shall not want. And we're going, we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, but I think this is why the cross, going to the cross is so difficult for Jesus. Because going to the cross means he's going to be separated from his father. This father, again, he's been with his father from the beginning of time. He's always with his father. And I think going to this cross is now this emotional anguish. Again, we can never comprehend that closeness. We can never comprehend. So being pulled apart is something that, again, I don't, I don't think we can ever fully understand. And so in that moment when he's faced with that, being separated from the father, what does he do? He does what he always does. He runs to the Father. He goes to the garden and he prays. And he draws strength from his Father for that moment that he's going to be separated from his Father. So finally, after Jesus has kind of laid out these two kingdoms, you know, there's this kingdom of this world, and then there's this true kingdom. Jesus kind of brings it to conclusion. He kind of finishes painting this picture. And I, and I love what he says here. And, and what I also love is what he doesn't say. So after he paints this picture, he doesn't come back to his disciples and be like, all right, see, I'm helpless and I serve. Now go, come on, be helpless and serve. That's what you got to do, be helpless and serve. That's not what he does. Let's see what he says in verse 28. It says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, you are those who have stayed with me. What he's trying to tell his disciples is that the essence of this kingdom, this true kingdom, it's not duty, it's not doing all the right things, it's relationship. He says, you have stayed with me. As I stayed with my father, 
you have stayed with me. As my Father loves me, I love you. As my Father assigned to me this kingdom of helplessness and submission, I'm assigning to you this kingdom of helplessness and submission. Why would I do that? Because I love you. And I want what's best for you. And I know that if you eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, you will taste true goodness. And you shall not want. You won't waste your time over here anymore. And again, I think this is a beautiful picture. I mean, Jesus has laid it out. I mean, man, here are these two kingdoms. Here are these two kings. Here's the true kingdom. Here's the true king. And I feel like Jesus can be like, drop the mic and like, all right, let's go. But the problem is the disciples, man, they're constantly being tugged by this other kingdom. Again, they've been with Jesus three years. This isn't the first time he's laid it out for them. He's laid it out time and time again. And the pull of this kingdom is really strong. And I'd love to say, you know, the disciples were like, yep, all right, we're in. But if we read on the next four or five verses, it's Peter not getting it. Peter living in this kingdom over here. And then after that, we read another four or five verses, and it's the rest of the disciples not getting it and, and being tugged over here. And I think about the disciples, and it's like, man, come on. But then it's like, you know what, that's me. I really want this kingdom. I really want to live in this true kingdom over here, but I'm constantly being tugged, constantly being pulled into this kingdom of this world. And as I've thought about it, I feel like um, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, I think he gets at this struggle, this kind of tug of war between these two kingdoms uh, really well. He says, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply of shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other stronger, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and fretting, coming in out of the wind. And as I read this, it's like, man, that is me. I wake up in the morning, and it's like the demands of the day just pile on. It's like, okay, man, what's, what do I have to do today? I've got, all right, what do I have to do for work? Um, I want to be a good dad. What, what do I need to do for my kids? I've got to take care of this house. Um, recently, just like real life for me, uh, my family were in the process of buying a new house. And it's like, oh, man, okay, what do we have to do to get everything in order to buy this house? How do we keep our house clean? How do we get our house ready to sell? Uh, is our house, wh what things do we have to fix? And it's like, before I know it, I'm like drowning and I haven't even got out of bed yet. And all the while, while these wild animals are rushing at me, my true king is over here. And he's that other voice. And he's inviting me to this larger, stronger, quieter life. He says, come on, step back. Step back from your fussing 
and you're fretting, then step in. You know, come with me. You know, have a seat at my table. Come and I will give you rest. I will fill you up. So one thing I've been thinking about is um, it must have been really nice to have Jesus around. You know, the disciples, they start arguing, thinking about who's the greatest. And Jesus, you know, points out, you know, that's really a symptom of this divided heart inside of you. And so I'm like, man, I want to know when I'm living in the kingdom of this world. And I want to know when I'm living in the true kingdom. So like what symptoms can I be looking out for that I'm actually living over here in this kingdom of the world? What's, what symptoms, what signs are there that I can find? And so, again, I have kids, so my examples are kids stuff. So um, I've been reading this book, Charlotte's Web. Maybe more, more people familiar with Charlotte's Web? Okay, so a classic, I think most of us are, are familiar. So Charlotte's Web is this great book. Um, and one of the main characters in this book is uh, this pig. This pig is named Wilbur. And Wilbur is really good at fussing and fretting. Um, because towards the beginning of the book, uh, Wilbur um, learns that his purpose in life is to get really fat and then get killed and be eaten for Christmas dinner. And he doesn't like that plan. He, he wants a different plan. And so he runs around and he's like, I don't want to die. 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 And so he's constantly like fussing. And um, thankfully for Wilbur, there's this spider uh, named Charlotte. And uh, Charlotte uh, loves Wilbur. And so she says, you know what, Wilbur, I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry. Don't hurry and don't worry. And so what does Wilbur do? He's like, okay, Charlotte. And then like two minutes later, so you have a plan? What's your plan? How can I help you? I want to help you with this because, you know, I don't want to die. 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 And so Charlotte's like, Wilbur, don't hurry and don't worry. I will take care of it. And so finally, Wilbur starts to trust Charlotte. And he's like, okay, okay. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to hurry. I'm just going to trust you. And so in our house, this is kind of stuck with us. Like everyone in our family, we're kind of on the lookout for hurry and worry. And we're like, hey, you're hurrying. Oh, you're worrying. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I feel like these are actually two pretty good symptoms of living over here in the kingdom of this world. What I've noticed is when I hurry and when I worry, what I'm doing is, is I'm feeling the weight of kind of the hard stuff, the hard things in life, and I'm feeling like I have to do it all on my own. And again, when I do that, when I hurry and when I worry, my true king is over here and he's inviting me, you know, no, 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 come over here. Come over here. Come to me. I want to give you rest, and I want to fill you up. So I, I guess I just kind of want to pose that question today. You know, maybe think about or ask yourself, where do hurry and worry pop up in your life? And maybe this week, you guys can kind of be like our You can kind of be on the lookout for hurry and worry and when you find yourself hurrying and worrying, it's this opportunity to recognize, like, oh, man, I'm being tugged. I'm being pulled. And, and there's, a, there's a way better kingdom 
over here. There's actually a true king, and he wants me to come and rest in him. So um, as we close, I want to go back to that passage in Isaiah that we talked about uh, earlier, because we kind of stopped mid-thought in that passage in Isaiah. So that passage talks about kind of the futility of the kingdoms of this world and the greatness of the true kingdom and our true king. But again, we kind of stop mid-thought because as that, that section goes on, what it says is that greatness, this greatness of the kingdom is really on full display in us. It really shows up the best in our weariness, in our weakness, and in our in our tiredness. And so, so here's what it says, Isaiah 40, verses uh, 28 and 29. Again, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has not might, he increases strength. Over here, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It says, but those who wait for the Lord, those who pull themselves, they, they dig their feet in over here in that true kingdom, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are our true king. God, thank you that you love us and you care about us. God, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are patient. God, help us to press in to you. As we feel this tug of the kingdom of this world, help us to press into you. And as we do that, we find real strength. We find real life. We taste your goodness. God, I pray that we know that that is something that we can never have on our own, but it's something that we always have with you. Amen.